Hi, my name is Chris Jensen, and this is my life, and welcome to it. sit on a Friday evening. It's uh, 6 p.m. and uh, I'm realizing that I need to get a podcast recorded for tomorrow morning. So I thought maybe I better get to it. I procrastinated a little bit. Um, I've got other projects that I'm working on that took some time this week and uh, sort of put this on the on the back burner. I also turned to 65 on Tuesday, so that was kind of a big deal. Um, and I'm working on a couple of other things. Um, I've got, uh, I was just notified uh, when I logged into Anchor.fm, who's hosting the podcast. They were offering me a website by WordPress, um, and it's the domain name will be free for the first year. And I thought, what the heck, let's go for it. So I've been looking at that. The other thing that I'm working on, I think I've mentioned it before, is putting together a live streaming program of It's Not About Me, It's About Us, where not only will I try to have friends that I've known for a while um, as guests, but other people of interest. You know, there is that saying, um, a stranger is only a friend I haven't met yet, so uh, who knows where, where that could lead. I'm still doing some research so that I'm putting forward something that, you know, it's fun to watch, it's nice to look at um, and listen to. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm thinking maybe late spring, early summer uh, to actually launch it, launch it. and I'll, I'll give everyone pl plenty, of, uh, plenty of warning. Um, it will be, uh, you can view it, you'll be able to view it on, uh, my, welcome to my life. No, wait, you know, I can never remember the name of my own podcast and that's stupid. Um, my life and welcome to it, uh, the Facebook page and also my personal page and there will be a YouTube channel. So yeah, I know it's giving me a lot to do. I'm keeping quite busy these days. It's. You know, being retired, I really enjoyed uh, just having some downtime. Uh, now I've got uh, some things I'm doing, and I'm realizing that I don't have as much downtime as I used to. And when I create downtime for myself, I often put myself in a bind time-wise in getting some of my other projects completed. So anyway, you know, I was thinking about where, where are we? in uh, we me in the tale of my journey i've done a lot of things and so many things happened at the same time and things are starting to come together i don't know it but a lot of pieces are starting to fall into place um as i am pursuing you know this 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 early Christianity, first century, second uh, first century, second century, on into the third century. 
realizing that early Christianity was a unit for the most part. After we get past the second century, we sort of start seeing uh, the form of the church, you know, congeal, really take form. Um, there were a couple of things that happened in the uh, in the fourth century that uh, uh, really shaped things going forward, especially with uh, with uh, Emperor Constantine. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. But what happened was I started reading um, early church fathers that were both accepted by the uh, the Latin, the Western Church, and the Eastern Orthodox Church. They share them. And I started reading them. And I started seeing things and reading things that really resonated with a lot of what I'd already been studying. One of the key things that I found that runs throughout every spiritual practice and tradition is the breath. Breathing, conscious breathing, relaxed breathing, um, understanding how the breath is related to the spirit. I knew this, but it really didn't take on the meaning that it has for me recently. You know, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, the word for spirit is ruach, which also means breath. You know, the uh, the story of when God made the first human and he breathed in him the breath of life. It's that ruach. And in Genesis 1, 1, you know, where the, the spirit of God hovered over the waters, however you want to say it, but that's the ruach. It's that breath, breath of God. And in the New Testament, which is, you know, primarily Greek, um, the word for spirit is also breath. And I just found that quite interesting. And then moving into some of the early Christian uh, practices and the importance of prayer. Prayer was phenomenally important. And certain prayers had breathing practices that went along with them. Now, this was something that I'd never come across before in Christianity. Pretty much in uh, Protestant and evangelical Christianity, you're not going to find a whole lot on the breath or chanting um, or, uh, you know, meditative contemplative prayer, mystical prayer. However, in the in Eastern Orthodoxy and in the Latin Church, you absolutely do. And if you go back far enough into the third, second centuries that we have, because there's not a lot written in the first century. It's mostly what we have in the Bible. Uh, there are some letters, but they were never they never made it into the canon of Scripture, like the Shepherd of Hermas and I think First and Second Clement stuff like that. Anyway. Uh, and it, it, it just really intrigued me. You know, when I look back on my time in Kundalini Yoga, the breath was the predominant vehicle um, that we united with our bodies in movement um, to raise our fundamental energies. And 
in yoga, it's, it's, it's prana. Prana is the breath. It's more than the breath, but I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying it. But there's a practice, it's called prana yoga, and it's breathing practices. And there are certain mudras, which are hand positions, closing one nostril, closing both nostrils. Um, there's one where you close your nostrils and your mouth and your ears, sort of shutting down the five senses. And then moving into, into Zen meditation, I know one of the very first things that I was shown in meditation practice, in order to begin getting the mind focused, concentrate on our breathing, right? Just breathing in and breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. And that when the mind wanders, which it is wont to do, simply bring it back to watching the breath. Breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, and then counting those breaths. You know, breathing in, one, breathing out, breathing in, two, breathing out, breathing in, three. And when you get to ten, then you start over at one. And it's a way of training one's consciousness to focus on something. Um, and being able to bring the mind back when it wanders. And hopefully, over time, it wanders less and less and less so that you can really then focus in on the breathing and the counting. Then as you go along, you, know, you might add a mantra. It could be a word or phrase that then rides upon the breath. And eventually you get to a stage where where you don't focus on the breath, you don't focus on counting, you don't focus on a mantra, you just sit. That is, for me, true zazen, sitting. Sitting meditation where you just sit. It's not something that can be done immediately. It's something that requires practice and using various techniques to help one get to that place, um, you know, let, let's you know after the after the Zen Buddhism, um, you know, I with Aikido, um, there's very much an, uh, a focus on the breathing. You know that when uh, if you're like the uh, the Nage and you're on the receiving end. There's a, there's a breathing in as you receive the other person and a breathing out then as you blend, you unite with that other person and then maybe another breathing out as you ground the person in the, uh, in the square. So there's a breathing in, uh, uh, yes, an inhale on the, on the triangle, uh, an exhale on the uh, circle, and another inhale on the square the thing is though it's not hard and fast you can reverse that whole thing but the the uh, the sense is is to focus on one's breathing and to keep calm you know it's um in aikido if we get agitated and excited and especially if we go into a bit of a struggle or a fight mode 
Um, we, our muscles are engaged. We're using a lo lot of energy in the body. The body then starts requiring lots and lots of oxygen. And we're no longer able to maintain any type of uh, regular rhythmic breathing. So it's something to, to work on and practice. But very much so, we, we worked on, on breath. Very much. Very, very much. And so in finding the emphasis on breath in early Christianity, um, I was pretty much, you know, blown away. And the idea that in prayer, you know, normally when, you know, at least when, uh, when I was taught how to pray, you know, there were, there were words that you memorized, um, you have certain conceptions of, you know, who God is, what God maybe looks like, um, you know, just all these ideas in our minds. Uh, a lot of times we today, as an adult, we might use, you know, a picture or we might pray before a cross or a crucifix. Um, if you're a Catholic, you might, you know, pray uh, before the Holy Eucharist. All different kinds of stuff, right? But the prayer that is that mystical inner prayer on the breath is one that is imageless. And I discovered uh, some series of books. And uh, I'm going to pause this for a second while I hoof on over to my little library here. Okay, so I found three books in my library. Um, what's interesting is, is that they all are Russian. And... That's kind of amazing to me. So one of the ones that I have, it's a, it's a tale uh, that is told, and it's called um, The Way of a Pilgrim. And then also The Pilgrim Continues His Way. And it's all about a guy that travels around in Russia visiting um, Russian Orthodox monasteries trying to learn how to, how to pray and get closer to God. And... The prayer that is most talked about is called the prayer of the heart, um, and it's I, and I'd never heard of that, and um, so I started, you know, doing some some study in here. Um, the way of a pilgrim. It says here in the in the front of the book. It says it was written by an unknown 19th century Russian peasant and tells of his constant wrestling with the problem of how to pray without ceasing. There's a phrase of St. Paul where he says to pray without ceasing. I believe it's in the book of Thessalonians. Uh, it's off the top of my head. Could be wrong there. Through his journeys and travels and under the tutelage of his spiritual father, he becomes gradually more open to the promptings of God. The reader is enriched as he shares these religious experiences in a most humble, simple and beautiful narrative. And it was. It was a very fun book to read. Very, very fun book indeed. Um, and uh, the Prayer of the Heart is also called the Jesus Prayer. And it became something, it was, it was, it was, it was kind of a, the Jesus Prayer was something that I chased down um, because I was just totally fascinated with it. So I got a couple of, of books here. Um, that are more, I would say, they're writings of, of Russian fathers. And 
Uh, one's called The Art of Prayer, an Orthodox Anthology. And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible talking about inner prayer um, and the prayer of the heart. And it talks about getting rid of images, that images actually become a barrier between the person praying and God, that God is unknowable and that God is beyond anything that we can conceive of so that when the mind does conceive of things, it actually stands in the way of being able to experience God mystically like that. The Philokalia is, uh, says writing, I just, it's a one volume thing. The Philokalia is a very, it's a lot of, it's a couple of books, right? It's, a, it's volumes. And this one is writings from the Philokalia on prayer of the heart. Um, there's a, there's an island off the coast of Greece. Uh, it's called Mount Athos. And on that island are many, many different monasteries, Orthodox monasteries. Um, there's Russian, Russian Orthodox and Greek Orthodox and, uh, just all, all there's, there's multiple ones. And you can, you can look that up on, uh, just Google Mount Athos, A-T-H-O-S. And you have to take a boat. I, th I think it's, uh, Thessalonica is the closest city, I believe. And you take a boat to the island and you can then visit the monasteries. Um, and what's wild about it is women are not allowed. There aren't even, even any female animals allowed on the island. Um, I guess the tradition is that the, uh, the Virgin Mary appeared on the island and therefore... No other woman is allowed. I think that's the story behind that. But anyway, um, someone was researching on Mount Athos and discovered these writings and started putting them together in book form, talking about the prayer of the heart and how to actually um, practice it. And it has lots of uh, writings from not just Russian, but uh, Greek fathers of the church. Um, and one of the things that I thought was interesting that, um, came across my radar was a person that was involved in bringing the, uh, the Philokalia to light. And, uh, let me, let me grab his name and, uh, pause it again here. I'll be, I'll be right back. So as I was, uh, doing some reading there's a fellow by the name of Gurdjieff who wrote uh, a book, Beelzebub and His Sons, and he taught something called The Fourth Way. had to do with movement and breath and chanting and singing and fasting and a bunch of stuff. And he had a student, a guy by the last name of Ospensky. And um, Ospensky is an interesting character. He uh, Apparently, he liked reading the Russian Orthodox mystics and he may have even gone to mount athos um and read about the the prayer of the heart um which is a very interesting little little connection there there are some some allusions to father nikos who lived on mount athos that ospensky came in contact with 
Um, I, I, I just found that a very, very interesting little side note. It's, it's a lot of anecdotal information, um, people making speculations based on other things, but I, I did find that quite profound. So just to be clear, the Philokalia was started off being as a Greek text. It was was written in about the 4th century. People have added to it over the centuries. Um, it then got translated into the Russian. And I just want to read a couple of things uh, that I found. I'm, this is the Art of Prayer, an Orthodox anthology, and it was translated uh, from the Russian. And um, there's this, uh, this fella, uh, Theophan the Recluse, he was called. And his definition of prayer, I just and I love it, I just love this, that prayer is standing before God with the mind in the heart. I, I you know, I just, I love that. That just, that really resonates with me. Um, and of course, that's what the prayer, you know, the Jesus prayer or the prayer of the heart is all about, being able to rest one's breath and one's mind and one's focus in one's heart. And, uh, I just thought that was brilliant. Um, it's funny, I, I as I was thumbing through the introduction here, looking for something specific, um, I found some comments that they make about the breathing exercises. And uh, it's an indisc any indiscriminate use of the breathing exercises they regarded as highly dangerous. This is a, a prayer practice that they said, don't do it by yourself. Um, you need to have uh, someone who is mature and experienced be with you and watch with you and um, help you understand what you're going through as you pray this prayer. That it's just not something to be done on one's own. So it was dangerous. So it says a couple of things here. First, the breathing exercises are nothing more than an accessory, an aid to recollection, useful to some but not obligatory upon all. They are in no sense an essential part of the Jesus prayer, which can be practiced in its fullness without them. Secondly, these breathing exercises must be used with the utmost discretion, for they can prove exceedingly harmful if performed in the wrong way. In, print, in themselves, they rest upon a perfectly sound theological principle that man, human, is a single and integrated whole, a unity of body and soul, and therefore the body has a positive role to play in the work of prayer. So, uh, it says, um, uh, Orthodox writers normally insist that anyone practicing the physical method should be under the close guidance of an experienced spiritual director. Okay. Um, skipping over, I'll get to the third thing here. It says, um, The practice of the Jesus prayer, with or without the breathing technique, presupposes full and active membership of the church. If the prayer is sometimes described as an easy method or quick way, such language must not be misunderstood. Save in very exceptional cases, 
the Jesus prayer does not dispense us from the normal obligations of the Christian life. I think I looked at, I, I, I skipped over that, I think, because I was still in a, in a space where I wanted to pursue um, God and I wanted to pursue my own spiritual growth, but I didn't want to do it in a group. I really wanted to be on my own, just sort of wing it. You know, I figured, you know, there are, there, there, there's the monastics, the monks, there's hermits. You don't need to be with a lot of people to do these things. So I was really sort of wanting to just be myself, do my own thing, practice these things. I, I did start praying the Jesus prayer, by the way, on my own, um, along with some other breathing practices that I'd picked up along the way. Sort of a do-it-yourself, build-your-own, uh, potato-head kind of a spiritual practice. Um, and it was around this time that I also got hooked into uh, a guru from, from India and uh, let me uh, let me grab a book or two about him. Um, I shall be right back. You know, I never know what I'm going to find when I when I go to my library. I've got so many books. Um, and while I was looking for this Indian guru that I want to talk about, I found another book. Um, it's called Babaji: Meeting with Truth at Haidakan Vishwa Mahadam. The greatest place in the universe, and this this is the Babaji that Leonard Orr met and worked with, and learned about physical immortality. It's got photographs of Babaji and a picture that he painted, and you know some some pictures of him in meditation as a young kid as he got older. Um, you know, a little bit, a little some stories of who he was supposed to have been in a previous life. Um, and then, interestingly enough, it's got pictures of him after he died. There he is in a funeral, uh, which is, you know, I mean, he, uh, he was supposedly an immortal. Um, he manifested his own body, uh, full-grown. You know, he didn't go through childhood. Um, and yet he died. He didn't just like dissolve into the ether or demanifested. He died just like the rest of us. Um, I, I've always thought that was that was interesting. You know, I don't try to draw too many conclusions from things. Um, one of the cool things about some of these photographs, though, is that I'm looking at these <clears throat> guys in India in the water, wearing their loincloths, and they've got some pretty nice pot bellies there. So uh, I don't feel so bad, because I've got a pretty good pot belly going on. Anyway, uh, so I thought that was kind of cool that I, I knew I had this book, I but I thought I, I'd misplaced it, because it wasn't where I thought it was supposed to be. So, anyway, I got a kick out of that. I'm going to look at that a little bit later. Uh, that's a nice walk down memory lane. Anyway, the guy that I want to talk about, he was born in 1879. Uh, he's known as 
Ramana Maharishi. And uh, he's an interesting, really interesting kind of a guy. Um, he, uh, he taught a non-dual kind of a way of looking at things. And his story is just quite amazing. So the, the first book I got, it's, it's, shoot, it's falling apart. See how, what, how old is this book? It's not that, oh yeah, it's kind of old. Um, this might be the newest edition. That's 1970, but it was first published in 1959. Um, so it's, it's been around and it's sort of a cheap binding. It's fallen apart. Um, but here's, here's the, here's this guy's story. It's very different. So when he was 18 years old, he wanted to know what it was like to die. So he lay down on the floor and basically stopped breathing for a long time. And when he got up, he was like, um, like in a daze or, you know, in a, his mind was not, I don't even know how to, let me see if I can see how it was described in the book here. Actually, at the beginning of the, uh, in the preface here, uh, it recounts the story as uh, Ramana Maharishi told it himself. So I'll just relate it to you here. It was about six weeks before I left Madura for good that the great change in my life took place. It was quite sudden. I was sitting alone in a room on the first floor of my uncle's house. I seldom had any sickness, and on that day there was nothing wrong with my health, but a sudden violent fear of death overtook me. There was nothing in my state of health to account for it, and I did not try to account for it or to find out whether there was any reason for the fear. I just felt, I am going to die, and began thinking what to do about it. It did not occur to me to consult a doctor or my elders or friends. I felt that I had to solve the problem myself there and then. The shock of the fear of death drove my mind inwards, and I said to myself mentally, without actually framing the words, Now death has come. What does it mean? What is it that is dying? The body dies. And I at once dramatized the occurrence of death. I lay with my limbs stretched out stiff as though rigor mortis had set in and imitated a corpse so as to give greater reality to the inquiry. I held my breath and kept my lips tightly closed so that no sound could escape, so that neither the word I nor any other word could be uttered. Well then, I said to myself, this body is dead. It will be carried stiff to the burning ground and there burnt and reduced to ashes. But with the death of this body, am I dead? Is the body I? It is silent and inert, but I feel the full force of my personality and even the voice of the I within me apart from it. So I am spirit transcending the body. The body dies, but the spirit that transcends it cannot be touched by death. That means I am a deathless spirit. 
All this was not dull thought. It flashed through me vividly as living truth which I perceived directly, almost without thought process. So, so there you go. That was his experience. Um, he says, for a few weeks after this awakening, he remained with his family, leading outwardly the life of a schoolboy, although all outer values had lost their meaning for him. He no longer cared what he ate, accepting with like indifference whatever was offered. He no longer stood up for his rights or interested himself in boorish activities. So far as possible, he conformed to the conditions of life and concealed his new state of consciousness. But his elders saw his lack of interest in learning and all worldly activities and resented it. So, um, there was a mountain uh, not far away. Uh, Arunachala, Arunachala, let's see, Arunachala, yeah. And then there was a town, Tiruvannamalai, at its foot, that he was always interested in. And uh, when he realized that his elders sort of resented him and what he was going through, he uh, he left home uh, secretly, and he never uh, he never returned. He remained there for 50 years at that mountain, foot of the mountain. Um, his given name was Venekataraman, and it was shortened to Ramana. And he was called uh, Maharishi, which is, that is, the Maharishi, or great sage. He's also known as Bhagavan. So, um, yeah, he stayed there for the longest time. Um, he found himself in a cave, and uh, when some disciples or some people found him, he uh, he was just sitting there, and I guess there were, you know, bugs biting him and living in his hair. And um, let's see if this other he just didn't he didn't care he didn't care about himself, and uh, so the folks that found him they. Uh, you know, they got him out of the cave and um, cleaned him up and in an ashram built up around him and he began to teach people. What does it say here? It says, uh, After this experience, Venkataraman lost all interest in things of the world and ultimately left home without his parents' permission to find his way to the holy mountain of Arunachala. There he spent several years in silent self-absorption, first in a dark corner of a temple in Tiruvannamalai, at the foot of the mountain, and later in various caves on the mountain itself. And at one point, let's see, oh, during this time he totally neglected all care of the body, and at one point was virtually chewed up by insects. Even when his mother sought him out and attempted to get him to return home, he did not break his silence, but rather acted as though he did not see her. So, very interesting guy. He died in 1950 from cancer. And it's still an active ashram to this day, from what I understand. Anyway, he had an interesting way of, of teaching people. And he would teach people based on what they were ready to hear. 
So he would often teach them what he felt was his most profound and simplest truth. And if they weren't ready to hear it, then he would adapt it to whatever they could accept, um, which I, I find very interesting. And so uh, if you read his teachings, there's a whole bunch of different things that he says, and many of them are meant for the person that he's talking to. Um, and so you take it with a grain of salt. I mean, it's all good stuff, right? But it's not necessarily what he truly felt was his highest, deepest, and most profound truth. And that was that um, nothing exists except for God. Not me, not you, not him. Uh, the I as we know it is not an individual I. And when we say I, it's an, the, it's an illusion of, let's say, the ego. Uh, and he has lots of different ways of, of describing it. But uh, he would often ask people to point to themselves. So go ahead and point to yourself. And, you know, where did you, where did you point to? Did you point to your head? Right? Did you point to your chest where your heart is? This, this, the heart symbolizing, you know, uh, your essence, your, your, your most inner being? Where, where did you point? And the observation in the book is that most everyone points to their heart. Right? It just goes straight to the chest. And he said that is where the true self abides. Um, that is our connection with God that's not different from God. It's very interesting, and one of the main practices that he would teach his followers is to inwardly, mentally, continue to ask the question, who am I? Allow for an answer. Who am I? Who am I? Start digging deeper and deeper and deeper. Who, who, who is that I? Who is the I that is saying I? Right? It's, it's, it's very deep stuff. And um, a lot of people went and saw him. I think, uh, well, what was the, uh, the actress back in those days? Um, oh, gosh, what was her name? Let me see if I, can, if I can find that. She went to visit him. Very famous person. Okay, so it took a minute. Uh, I had to Google all I could remember was that she was the star of the good ship Lollipop. And, of course, that's Shirley Temple. So Shirley Temple met with him. Um, yeah, he was, he was kind of a famous dude. Anyway, um, got me to thinking about a lot of things. You know, uh, I didn't quite know how to evaluate where I was at. Um, but I began to start thinking about, you know, what is my inner self? What is, what is God? Who am I? Um, what's my relationship to other people? Um, all those, all those kinds of questions. Really, sort of having a, a real get down and dirty with, you know, I've been gallivanting, doing my own thing for a long time, and it just felt like. Um, now it's time to start getting serious, you know, about my spiritual journey. Because even though I've been doing a lot of things, 
you know, I really, um, it was easy for me to jump from one thing to the next. One of the things that I'd read somewhere, I forget where exactly, but someone said how important it was to commit to uh, a spiritual practice or tradition and just dive into it fully. Um, and so I was beginning to question things. And uh, so this is uh, a story I'm going to tell. I don't think I'm going to tell it tonight, however. I'm going to, I'm going to save it. I'll try to... Uh, Try to tell it during the day. Try to tell it during earlier in the week when I've got time to, to think about it and then listen to it. Um, but it's it's the event that sort of catapulted me into a new way of looking at life. Um, and it was truly a crossroads for me spiritually. That was the, uh, the direct product of the teachings of uh, Ramana... Maharishi and uh, uh, C.G. Jung and um, many of the Eastern philosophies and, and, and doctrines. So uh, one fateful spring day, um, my world uh, my world changed, and uh, I think I think I'll uh, talk about it next next time, and just spend a little bit of. Uh, of, uh, of time talking about what it's meant and uh, some of the things that I've discovered, truly surprising things along the way. So uh, next week, next week, mm, it's a story I've been holding on to, and uh, it'll be the last episode for season two. So I think anyway. Uh, so anyway, uh, let me grab my... Uh, my tagline for the end of this recording and uh, thank you Brad Brad's a good friend I, I have a lot of gratitude for Brad um, he's a faithful listener to this uh, so let me see here here we go so I'm going to sign off for now I'm Chris Jensen Talk to you soon. My Life and Welcome to It is produced by me, Chris Jensen. My technical consultant is David Patterson of Drowning Man Productions. David, along with three others, have a podcast called Wasting All the Time, and they provide improvisational comedy uh, for us to listen to. I would encourage you to check them out. The art for My Life and Welcome to It uh, is drawn by Dave Edwards. And if you're interested in any of other, uh, Dave's other art, um, you can find him on Instagram at EvilDaveTM. You can find this podcast wherever podcasts can be found. 
and I'd love to hear from you. Um, you can email me at mlawti101 at gmail.com. The music for Chasing After God, which is part of my life and welcome to it, is Skywords by Will Van de Cromert. Well, that's all for now. I look forward to spending some time with you again next Saturday. And until then, be safe, be well, and God bless. <laughs>